Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I all, I'll thank you. Librarians hate to be stereotyped saying shh, so thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to another edition of our Talking About Race lecture series. And I must tell you, there's nothing better than having the problem of too many people and an overflow crowd in the Edgar Allan Poe room. Hello, everyone in the Edgar Allan Poe room. Now, many of you know that this wonderful series has been made possible by a partnership between the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Open Society Institute, Baltimore. For more than three years, we have partnered with OSI on this very successful series. And our goal was to create a dynamic and a no-holds-barred uh, conversation on race in Baltimore. And it started here at the library, and we hope that it continues into the rooms and conference halls all over the city. And I believe that we have succeeded in reaching our goal. Our partnership with OSI through the years spotlights the importance of having a library as a place for the free and open exchange of ideas and discussion, and also the significance of having in this city an organization like OSI. I know some of you are associated with OSI, board members, and all of that, but those of you who aren't, may not realize that the city of Baltimore, in particular, is very fortunate to have OSI. They fund initiatives that are challenging, but also very necessary. And we are honored to work with them, and I think they deserve a special hand. Now, we're also honored to have a very special friend of the Pratt Library here. Pulitzer Prize winning historian, Baltimore native, baseball lover, Taylor Branch. And we have more authors coming, and we just want you to know that on February 28th, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor will be here at the Pratt Library, and we hope you will come and join us. So please, February 28th. I mentioned that OSI Baltimore um, is a wonderful partner. I was honored actually to actually be on their board when it first started. And so I have a special friendship and affinity for the director, Miss Diana Morris. Please welcome her. Also being very patriotic with the flag so close. <laughs> oh yes, there's still room in the Poe room. And the Poe room is actually one floor down, so if you would like to sit, we have a screen up, and you'd be able to sit comfortably there and see. It won't be quite as immediate, but you'll almost be there, one floor below. So please feel free if you'd like to do that um, uh, before we get started. So I want to first of all thank Carla so very much. It is just an amazing pleasure that, to be here and to have this strong, strong partnership with the Pratt. Uh, the Pratt is one of the pla first places that was an integrated place. It was meant to be that, and it makes a huge difference because it's a place I think that everyone feels at home. 
So we're really delighted. And the one thing I'd say, it's not just our third year. This is actually the fifth year of talking about race. And we continue it because of crowds like the one here tonight, where there's just a tremendous interest here in Baltimore in really thinking more about what race uh, means to all of us. Um, we're really delighted that there's so many people here. And, and of course, I'm, we're not surprised because it's just tremendous to have uh, Taylor here, Taylor Branch here. He really is legendary. And we're so lucky not only to have him here in Baltimore, but he's actually a member of the Open Society Institute board. So we're very fortunate. And I want to, in the same breath, thank the many other members of the board who are here tonight, as well as members of our leadership council. They really uh, tr provide tremendous guidance to us, and we're able to do wonderful things because of their uh, foresight. So this night is uh, part of our series for 2013 uh, of, of the Talking About Race. And uh, as you probably know, if you have come to some of these before, we, we address a broad range of interests uh, that we have in this city. Uh, but many of them also focus particularly on the areas in which we work. Uh, we're focusing on making drug addiction readily accessible. We're very focused on keeping kids engaged in school. <laughs> drug treatment, drug treatment, <laughs> drug treatment. I remember, drug treatment. No drug zone. So, okay, drug treatment. Uh, and we want to keep kids engaged in school, and we want to keep people out of the criminal and juvenile justice systems. And in addition to those three areas, we have a wonderful core of community fellows. There's now over 130 of them, uh, basically 10 uh, fellows at a time in these classes, and they are very committed to Baltimore doing all sorts of wonderful things. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about them, um, you know, please do look at our website because I think you'll see that they're spread out in every single neighborhood here. So we're here in a very historic uh, time. Uh, we obviously have uh, a black president in his second term who's made some very good news today on the immigration front. And it's the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and the March um, on Washington. And I think it's not inconsequential that this is actually our 15th um, anniversary of the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore. Uh, for us, this is a year where we're going to deepen our focus, uh, really keep on working on these areas where we have seen some fairly tangible progress, but we know that these are huge issues affecting the city and our prospects for the future. Um, now, as you know, when these issues that I mentioned um, are really big issues, and the, some of us sometimes think of them as being intractable. But what we try to do is find the, the, the pathways where we really find the levers of change, and with those levers, really bring about changes that will help uh, not just a few people, but frankly, hundreds and thousands of people in our city. And as we do this work, we think it's really important to approach our work with a racial lens and to really have a good sense of history. Uh, and what Taylor has done in this new condensed volume of his much longer trilogy, which is over 2,000 uh, uh, pages, is that he's actually pared down some of the essential moments uh, to under 200 pages. And it's also that um, teaching of history and, and an understanding of this important era can be better understood by students and by others. So why is history so important to us? I think it's for a number of reasons. I'm sure you have some of your own. But in part, I think it's important for us to understand 
um, all the brave and courageous and difficult things that people have done to actually get us to this moment where we actually have many opportunities that we didn't have before and which will serve our future generations well. But it's also important, as Taylor points out, to see that even in this process with wonderful people working together, there, were, there was conflict and there were different points of view and people had to sort of work out those differences uh, in order to move ahead. It's also in the same breath important to see the complexity of these situations, uh, that change is hard, it takes multiple, multiple years, and that it takes a lot of people working together and sometimes going their own way. Um, and one of the things, of course, when you have this knowledge is that it can really help shape your own convictions and give you a sense of your own role. Um, and that knowledge, um, I think is really important because we can understand why we are where we are here in Baltimore today. Uh, that there has been a lot of things that didn't go the way some of us would have wanted and there's a, there's a pattern that we can see. There were missed opportunities and there were some resources and assets that together we did build. Um, and the last reason I would mention is that Taylor's book and all the learning and discussion that it will provoke is really critical to what I think we all want for our children's education. Certainly we want them to graduate, we want them to have had a rigorous education, and we want them to be prepared to go on um, to college and to good jobs. But we also want them to have the knowledge and the skills and the motivation to really become lifelong engaged citizens. Um, and I think this notion of an informed citizenry is really one of the great gifts that Taylor's giving us by uh, writing this book and really motivating us. Now, when we were thinking about whom we wanted to ask to join Taylor on the stage, uh, obviously there were many people who would have loved to be there, and there were also many gifted educators here in Baltimore whom we could have invited. But in the end, we chose two women who have a special responsibility, uh, what's often called student support, uh, and their job is to look at the whole student. Uh, the non-academic as well as the academic needs, the nurturing and the mentoring that students require, the experiences they need to have firsthand, the encouragement, the second chances, and the guidance that adults need to give them. Um, and so our feeling was that um, these, kinds of, uh, these kinds of functions, these kinds of supports are really what can make the difference in education. And it can result in not just academic mastery, but actually sound citizenship. So um, I'm going to invite our, our, our speaker and our question askers to come up on the, on the podium so that you can sit down. Maybe you, you might want to go on the other side, it might be less crowded. And as they come up, I'll tell you that Karen Weber and Dorr currently serves as the Executive Director of the Office of Student Support and Safety for Baltimore City Public Schools. And Tracy Wright is the Dean of Students at the Park School. And we invited these women because they both share the responsibility of looking at students as whole persons and preparing them to grow and mature as citizens with a sense of themselves, a sense of the community, and very importantly, a sense of what their role should be, what they want their role to be in that community. I know that um, Taylor's goal in condensing his trilogy was to capture uh, the interests of many people young and old, in understanding the important accomplishments of the civil rights struggles, the individual contributions that have changed and can change communities dramatically. 
and, and also an appreciation of the work that is still undone. All of this can, um, all of us uh, tonight, I hope, will go home and read this wonderful book and rededicate ourselves to engaging ourselves fully as citizens of this community. Certainly, Baltimore needs every one of us to do just that. So uh, just to talk briefly about the format, um, I'm going to introduce our speakers in a little more depth, and then um, Taylor will engage in a conversation with Karen and Tracy. And they'll speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll actually ask for questions from the audience. So um, we'll have a mic, and uh, we really hope that you'll participate. I do want to mention that if you um, like what you see in here tonight, uh, there's more, and we would really invite you to log on to our website and sign up for announcements of events like this. We'd be happy to invite you to them. Uh, so it's www.audaciousideas.org. So please do uh, sign up. Uh, and when you get that, you'll also get a weekly blog from us, which is uh, people from the community, all sorts of wonderful thinkers and advocates and leaders um, who are writing their thoughts for what will make Baltimore a better place. And finally, I, I appreciate uh, all the wonderful things that Carla said about the Open Society Institute. We can't do it without investors, and we do encourage you to think about making a gift for our work. And while you're at it, I hope you will also support the Pratt Library because it is also a tremendously important anchor institution, uh, which is really a center of learning for all of us. So to begin our program, um, Taylor, uh, as you may know, began his career as a magazine journalist for the Washington Monthly in 1970, and he later went to Harper's and Esquire. He's the best-selling author, of course, of the trilogy, Parting the Waters, Pillar of Fire, and At Cannon's Edge. And he's the recipient of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics uh, Circle Award. In 2009, uh, he did a, uh, the Clinton Tapes, Wrestling History with the President, which chronicled an unprecedented eight-year project to gather a sitting president's uh, comprehensive oral history. And he did that uh, you know, on tape and I think went into his... Um, Volkswagen, I remember that story, uh, and wrote down all the, his notes that Clinton gave to him. Uh, recently, his cover story uh, for the October uh, 2011 issue of The Atlantic went into a different direction, uh, the shame of college sports, and that, as you all know, has really touched off an ongoing uh, debate. Uh, and aside from this writing, Taylor also does a fair amount of, of teaching uh, both audiences directly, but also in, now in the classroom. And he's engaged in a wonderful experiment with an online course at the University of Baltimore about the civil rights era with his this latest book, uh, which some of us are, are auditing. And I think it's the beginning both of some really important online education and, and of course, broader knowledge of this important area. So the two women I mentioned, uh, Karen Weber Endor, uh, sitting immediately uh, to my right, is a lawyer and an advocate by training. But as I said, she's also the uh, executive director of the Office of Student Support and Safety for Baltimore City Public Schools. And in this capacity, Karen has really been focusing on creating safe and nurturing school climates uh, in all of our schools that are really conducive to kids concentrating and, and learning. And one of her... Uh, Focus points have really been to try to create alternatives to suspensions and really engage the voice of students. And as many of you know, um, reducing suspensions and uh, changing discipline policies has been one of the priorities of open society. 
Another area has been police training and healthcare access, uh, making sure that kids can actually choose the high schools that they go to. Uh, and before this, Karen was actually a principal uh, of the National Academy Foundation School, which uh, is a 6 to 12 uh, school uh, in the city, and it really became a flagship uh, school under her leadership. And then turning to Tracy, uh, Tracy Wright has worked in public and private schools, um, supporting students and their families for over 26 years. She's now the Dean of Students at Park School, and she's been very involved with student services, diversity, outreach, and admissions uh, work. Uh, prior to being at Park, she worked for the Maryland Tomorrow Futures Program, which was a dropout prevention program within Baltimore City Public Schools. And one of the things she's very proud of, and which is really quite unusual, is that she created a civil rights trip with students from uh, Park School, Baltimore City College High School, and City Neighbors Charter School. And this uh, civil rights tour is now in its 10th year. So you can imagine why uh, I immediately thought of these two women as wonderful people to think with Taylor about the value of this important book. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Uh, I'm supposed to speak for five minutes, and that's what I'm going to do. And then, um, but first, I want to thank both the Andy Pratt Library and the Open Society Institute for having this conversation about race. Um, the important thing about race is not what your conclusion is; it's getting outside your comfort zone and engaging people across the lines that divide us. That's how democracy started. That's how we make progress in race together. Um, I have a hard time with my students. Everybody wants to stake out the defensible moral ground and state their conclusion. Um, it's about the journey and it's about taking risks and it's about getting outside yourself. And I want to try to do a little of that tonight. For my five minutes, I basically just want to say this book's only been out a couple of weeks and I've talked about two things about its origins. Uh, one is that it's for education, and that's what we're going to discuss with the educators. So I'm going to set that aside. Teachers wanting me to do this, uh, high school, college, uh, what are we at, uh, in the, what does it require in the digital age? But the other one, I want to give you just a little bit before we shift to education as a motive for this. This book is dedicated to students of freedom and teachers of history. Um, on the students of freedom side, the motivation for doing this kind of compact, distilled message from the, the book on the history side is that I've grown increasingly frustrated that our public discourse and our public understanding of our history is so far out of whack with where I think it eventually will be and certainly where it should be when it comes to matters of race and freedom and politics. And I just want to give you a couple of ideas about uh, that in uh, a couple of more minutes, and then we'll shift to education because these fields uh, re relate to one another. This month, January 2013, is not only the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, which we're just now coming to grips with through the film Lincoln and things like that, uh, and even that doesn't emphasize uh, enough in my view, that it was a cliffhanger to pass the 13th Amendment in a House of Representatives that had no members from the southern states. Um, it was still a cliffhanger. Uh, and we're beginning to learn about that. 
It is also the 50th anniversary of two things that happened 50 years ago this month in January of 1963. Number one, Martin Luther King decided that after nine years, almost nine years after the Brown decision, that that the civil rights movement was losing its window in history and he had to take bigger risks and he decided to go into Birmingham, which was the tipping point of 1963. Coming up in, he wrote the letter from Birmingham jail in April, coming up 50 years, and then the tipping point, the real tipping point, was the vast children's demonstrations that started on the 2nd of May. Also though, in 1963, and this is where I hope some light bulbs will go off for people. 50 years ago this month, George Wallace took office in Alabama in a famous speech pledging segregation to now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. I draw a line in the sand against the forces of tyranny. And he pledged to defend segregation in a country that is far, far more stratified, or was, than we remember. Certainly it was stratified by race. Uh, uh, segregation was in the in the state constitutions of the southern states, and it was in the institutions uh, across the nation uh, totally, and, and had been. But we were also stratified by gender. Nobody had heard anything about disability rights. Nobody had heard anything about senior citizens, like Medicare. Um, uh, the immigration, uh, the legal immigration to the, the United States had been restricted since the first Immigration Act of, 19, of 1790, essentially to white citizens. It excluded most of the world. The word gay hadn't even been invented yet. Uh, it dare not speak its name. Wallace pledged to defend that world of hierarchy across the board. He failed. He failed, and by going through the door of our discomfort in race, race is always the doorway to new freedom. And, and it paid dividends that swept in collateral movements all through our society ever since. Such, such that if you are the parent of a daughter in the white south and you're doing well because you're in the Sun Belt, which didn't exist when it was segregated, didn't even have professional sports teams, it was the hookworm belt, uh, until the movement got rid of it. And your daughter wants to go to Yale or, God forbid, West Point. West Point, um, those opportunities exist because of Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin Luther King. And you should be grateful to them. Instead, most people are not aware of these things. They take them for granted. And beyond that, they resent the process that gave them all of these gifts. Why? Because George Wallace who could not keep up his pledge to maintain segregation forever, in retreat when segregation no longer was respectable, invented many of the catchphrases that are phrases that are chillingly contemporary in our politics today. He denounced pointy-headed bureaucrats from Washington telling us how to run our businesses and where we should go to school, and a biased liberal media that had a racial agenda in cahoots with political forces who wanted to concentrate all power in big government and centralized Washington. All of those phrases are George Wallace. And he invented this in a way that has taken hold first as a way of insulating people who resented the federal government for these changes primarily in race, but that lasted so long with the dominant idea being that government is bad, that it has been done for years now unconsciously. 
And we are unaware of the fact that it had racial implications, and we're certainly unaware of the fact that this is not the first time that we have willfully and disastrously misremembered our history. I grew up in Georgia being taught that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, that the slaves were better off here than they had been in Africa, and that the people who restored white supremacy to the South by overturning the Reconstruction government were known officially in my textbooks then and still today as the Redeemers. This is the Klan that did this by terror, but we wanted to make ourselves comfortable north and south with these memories to such a degree that we reinvented our history to become more, co more comfortable. We should be, if and when, the series of, of anniversaries that start this month, and we're coming up with Birmingham and the March on Washington and the Birmingham church bombing and the Kennedy assassination 50 years and the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Immigration Reform Act of 1965, which reversed the racially-based immigration and now has opened up our country in the last 50 years almost invisibly to the whole world. Lyndon Johnson said, never again will the twin barriers of prejudice and, and privilege shadow the gate to freedom. Sign that bill under the Statue of Liberty. It had profound consequences for race and freedom. It, this procession of things at relatively little cost, and relatively little cost in human lives and, and, in, and in obligation is an enormous blessing that when we achieve any sort of balance on our view of history and we re recover it as we had to do for the Civil War, we should be renewed and optimistic that we can once again tackle severe problems that face us and that to do that we have to get through outside of our comfort zones in race and anything else that divides us and that our own history provides us with an enormous springboard for optimism if we're willing to take the, the deepest values of democracy, equal souls and equal votes that Dr. King talked about seriously. So, one motivation, I'm trying to make more, one motivation for this book is to try to make the lessons of our misguided history clearer and more salient today so that people can understand and begin to wake up that when we listen to a lot of our public discourse, we are imprisoned in a cynicism that was originated by George Wallace and that the rest of us have unconsciously taken as the universe of our public discussion. And if we wake up from that, it's good. So, that's the historic motive. The other is educational because we have to, our kids don't get this history through their umbilical cord. <laughs> we have to take it to them and there are more and more challenges in the digital age and that's why I'm pleased to be up here with these two educators to talk with them about how to carry these lessons forward with new generations of students. Thank you. I don't know how in the world to follow that. <laughs> but what I will say is that um, I'm very grateful to be on this stage with a legend. Um, and I'm also very honored. Um, it was very difficult to read the book. It's one thing to read through a thousand pages and have it sort of distilled for you. It's quite another to be punched in the face, <laughs> page after page. And I mean that in a good way. Um, one of the things that was really important for me is to, to read that book at this stage in my life. Uh, these are the stories that I heard at my kitchen table. 
Um, my parents are older folks who were born and raised in North Carolina, segregated North Carolina, and all these stories were just part of what I knew growing up. Um, and one of the things that was very interesting to me, so and also what we did was sit around the kitchen table and watch the events roll out. I know sometimes my parents were missing because they were doing some kind of protest somewhere. I just thought that's what everyone did. Um, and it was not until I was older that I realized sort of the poignancy. And as I get older, it becomes more and more poignant for me. Um, and I'm sorry that they can't be here today. They're very sick. They're elderly sick folks, so they couldn't come. But I'm here representing them. Um, I thought that I, everybody was just like me. And my journey to uh, Baltimore has been a very interesting journey. Um, as I was young, I thought watching the events unfold, all the African-American kids that I knew uh, wanted to be lawyers. We were going to fight for rights and so forth. That was just what I thought everybody was about. Um, and I think I thought that until I came and became a classroom teacher here um, in the city. Um, I was at Lake Clifton High School where some of the most disadvantaged children I've ever met, and I've been to Africa and stayed in Africa for quite some time, and these were some of the most disadvantaged children I ever met, and they were disadvantaged because they were cut off from their history. And they were cut off from their history because of the series of events that were occurring in their lives. Parents on drugs, parents in jail, no parents, no home. And so they didn't know what I knew. And I assumed when we got to the civil rights section that everybody would be all excited. They're going to be engaged now. They thought we were talking about a time back in slavery. And so what it said to me as an educator, I had to dig on the internet and find stories that would somehow relate to them, somehow be relevant to them, because there had been a gap. There was a gap in the communication. There was a gap in the oral tradition. And it became very important to me that we had conversations, even if they were just little bits and pieces, because you can't absorb the entire story in a sitting. It's personal. It's emotional. It's about you and your people. So no one should think that students will sit for hours on end and ingest this information, process it, and go on as normal citizens, because it's a very painful history. What it prompted me to do is to stay in education. It was a thing that I said I would never do. I, my mom was a school teacher, and I said, this is the job I will never have. <laughs> and here I am 10 years later. Um, it's been the most rewarding, but also the most difficult job I've ever had, because we are fighting so many ills. And many of the ills that I see in our students are the remnants of slavery, the remnants of poverty, um, of disengagement, of disenfranchisement, um, and it's a lot to try to handle, because we want to categorize students. We want to say it's just because they're on free and reduced meals. We have names for them, farms, special education students. These are the problems that they have. The problems are really the society's problems, and it's what we have to cure as a, as a collective. It can't be done just by the educators. It can't be done just by the classroom teachers. It has to be all of us. The other thing that was important, and then I will shut up, the other thing that was important to me about this book is to finally see it, because as I heard these stories and read these stories as a younger person, I was very angry. And so it was an us and them, the good guys and the bad guys. And reading this book at this age made me realize that, first of all, this is all of our history. 
This is an American, this is an American story and an American sojourn. But it also, uh, because I'm older, I also felt deep empathy and sympathy for those who would hate to that degree and those who would t torture others' souls uh, based on a farce. So we can't expect our children to be at that level as they hear these stories. So one of the questions I'll be asking is, is how do we disaggregate this information? How do we distill it in such a way that it's meaningful and poignant, but not overwhelming? that it doesn't send children reeling off the edge of a life that's already difficult for them. And, and that, that's how I'll end my statement. Thank you. So I'm humbled to be on this stage today, and I hate public speaking. Um, but I love what I do, what I'm able to do um, with students from Park School and Baltimore City College High School and City Neighbors Charter School. And that is to take a civil rights trip. It's a week-long trip. We take this trip every year. Um, we just actually returned from our week-long trip on Friday um, the 25th. So 31 students were able to learn about the civil rights movement. Um, we take a diverse group of students. They are white and black and Asian and Hispanic and multiracial, and they are gay and they're straight and they're rich and they're poor and they come from underserved communities and they come from homes where everything is at their disposal. And we mix it all up together and get everyone out of their comfort zone and um, we take this journey. And, um, and so what we do is we distill the civil rights movement and we allow students to hear the stories of, um, of people involved in the movement. And so, you know, they, know, they meet with Congressman John Lewis and we've met um, James Bevel. The first year we took the trip, we, um, or actually the second year, we saw um, Coretta Scott King and she said, hello young people. So, um, so it's just, I mean, so year after year we have the opportunity to meet people and we also mourn their passing, but we, we want to learn their stories um, and their life lessons. So our trip, um, we leave from Baltimore and we go to Greensboro to um, North Carolina A&T and we learn about the first modern day sit-in. And we go to Atlanta, Georgia and we spend time at the King Centers. Um, and we visit Spelman and Morehouse and we talk about the importance of colleges um, as a way to motivate students. Um, it, you know, if you look at most of the places where, um, where there, were, there were protests, many colleges were, were right around the corner. So we do Spelman and Morehouse. We travel to um, Birmingham, Alabama, and we meet with a freedom rider and a teacher who was who taught children. And so she just turned her back when children walked out um, for the children's march. So the kids hear about what it means to be a teacher and how these teachers really encourage students to take a stand. We travel to Bir uh, where was I? Birmingham, and we go to um, Montgomery. And so that's the site of the Rosa Parks Museum, the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, and the Dexter Avenue Church. So all of these places, students have read about in the book, and they vaguely know what's happening, and then they really, it, this trip allows this experience, this American experience to unfold. We travel to Selma, we travel to the Mississippi Delta, and we go to schools that are underserved and, and kids are saying, how can this be? How can this be in the United States and in the Mississippi Delta? This is what the educational system looks like, and that there's segregation schools, and the schools are all black, 
or all white. Um, and then they think, wow, when I get back to Baltimore, wait a minute, I have some schools here that are all black or all white. Um, we travel to Little Rock, Arkansas, and we hear about the teenagers that integrated Little um, Central High School. And they hear about the courageous acts of people taking a stand or someone just being so kind to offer a smile to a student who is integrating the school. We, um, we travel to Memphis, Tennessee, and, um, and they go to the Lorraine Motel and we take a look at, at um, really the entire movement at that museum. And it's more than museums, it is about really understanding what was happening at the time, the choices that people made to be silent or to take a stand um, and to speak truth to power. And then we travel to Highlander, which is a training center where Rosa Parks and the labor, many people in the labor, labor movement um, worked. And, um, and then we trek back to Baltimore. And all of this is done um, with students who are so open-minded and willing to learn and to listen and to ask if they would have the courage to make a difference, um, to think about what they can do in their own sphere of influence. And so whether that is again, being friendly or taking a stand or saying this isn't okay or looking at the inequity in our school systems and asking questions and hopefully starting a movement. Um, so it's, it's the most important thing that I do with young people um, and we will continue. We'll have a second trip this year in April. Um, but what I would say is that the, children, the students learn about leadership. They learn about creating a movement. They learn tolerance. I mean, that's a, to listen to someone else who you disagree with vehemently. Sacrifice and patience and integrity. And, um, and so actually, that wasn't one of the students who was with me, but I do have a student who just returned from the trip um, in this room today. Um, and so what I would say is that the opportunity for students to, um, to be able to walk in the shoes and to take this journey um, and to ask the really difficult questions of themselves and of their parents um, is incredibly meaningful. Well, does one of you have a question, or do you want me to talk about education? Because I'd, I'd rather you have a question, because you're the educators, and I'm trying. Basically, part of the motivation for this book was to meet the educators, particularly I think history teachers are beleaguered in this country. They're at the low end of the totem pole in many respects. We measure our schools by the way they teach reading and math. So the Gilder Lerman Institute sent me around the country, and I got all the way out to Idaho, in a place with no black people and 95% uh, Mormon. I didn't think they'd be interested in the civil rights movement. They were desperately interested in it. But all the teachers said, my principal, if I'm a good history teacher, is trying to get me to switch over to reading. We don't get any new textbooks. We're at the low end of that. The textbooks we have are old and terrible. They're oatmeal with dates. Uh, <laughs> dates in history, I mean, not, not date the food. Um, <laughs> And that, that on Saturday, on Sunday night, I'm fixing dinner for my kids while I'm Googling with one hand trying to find something that is storytelling that will, uh, that will engage these children. So what they, this kind of pushed me. Writers are vain people, I, I will admit it. I was, you know, I've already done it. Why do I need to do anything else? Well, we like the stories, but I can't assign an 800-page book to college students, uh, uh, let alone uh, high school students. So make it do what you can. It's not their fault, 
that they're in the digital age and they have an iPad and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I bit, I bit the bullet and uh, try and and uh, there's a lot of blood on the floor trying to take 2,300 pages down to 190 <laughs> to pick things that are stories and that and that can drop people into each story with enough context to do it. Um, but and that and that will engage these students. And it's all part of an experiment that I'm interested in talking about with, with you because it, it involves an internet college course with people from all over the world taking it to see if, if, if that, uh, to an enhanced ebook. Does anybody know what an enhanced ebook is? I can't even read my own enhanced ebook because I don't have the right equipment. Okay, so we're all trying to be educated here and we'll, and we'll try to be educated together and realize that we do need to take new steps to try to bring this material to new generations of students and actually new generations of readers. Uh, there, there, I, I have discovered to my chagrin that there's a very large fraternity of people who, who bought my big books um, and put them on the shelf but haven't gotten That's around right. to reading them yet. <laughs> and so I don't care. That's fine. Um, this, this is another way uh, of getting into it, but I'm more concerned about these students because I think that's what really matters. I think one of the barriers um, for teachers in teaching this material is that they're really afraid of the backlash. They're afraid of the emotional impact. They're afraid of the discomfort, and sometimes they haven't fully wrestled with the discomfort themselves. How, how, do you, how do we get educators to move past their own discomfort and deal with the discomfort that may arise in a classroom setting from these types of materials? That is a great question. They have to, because it requires a faith that they don't begin with, which is that good things happen when people do. That it is through these, that if you understand that the people on the, in the civil rights movement, they didn't begin with an idea. They didn't begin with a, con they all knew segregation was wrong, but where does that get you? Um, they all knew that they couldn't get their story into the newspaper, but where does that get you? It doesn't get you anywhere. It gets you to ferocious arguments with one another about how do we uh, overcome that barrier? How do we get it into the, uh, into the newspapers? What do we do? The people in the civil rights movement were in perpetual internal conflict right. about what to do next. And if you can somehow communicate to people that this is a creative state and not something that is terrifying, uh, then, then, then you're moving forward. And, and that really is hard to do. But one advantage that we have is that it's, you have a natural point of identification because these are people roughly their age. It's an amazing thing in history that you have leaders. I mean, the, the race problem then and to a large degree the race problem now where you have the same people insisting that race is solved and unsolvable. And people don't care. They'll say willy-nilly, either one, even though they're blatantly contradictory, because either way says, I don't have to deal with it. Right. Um, and, and so the, the adults don't do it, but kids did. And I've had some of my best Martin Luther King Day uh, uh, meetings, you know, where I go into a school with first and second graders. They understand unfairness about who stands in line where. Um, <laughs> And, and they'll let you know what's unfair and what's not. And if you do an experiment where you try to say that all these people have to stand in the back everywhere we go all day, you will start a discussion. Um, and it will get go Whereas by the time they get in high school, they're already, 
they're already protective about their group and they're already protective about exposing themselves. And I, what I hope is that it will be a productive shock to them to see that, that kids in college who were the first in their whole family generations to go to college risk throwing it all away at a time when getting anything on your arrest record was tantamount to throwing away what m minuscule chance you had to, uh, to, to escape what in the South then was an, in, an inherited you know, caste system, that they were that brave enough to do it and that they would come out saying, I have discovered something here that is valuable. I have, I have felt a liberation through the humiliation that has bonded me with all these other people. That's what a movement is, you know. And, and even to talk to kids about what a movement is, I, I, I know that they think they have an idea about it, but I don't think, we don't really talk about the word movement and how it develops and how it builds. And, and again, I don't want to get back into the history. We're on the education side, but it is, it is emblematic of our blindness to our own history that the watchword in politics has gone from movement to spin. You know, spin means you're not going anywhere, it's just, it's just uh, for cynical entertainment and it's a soap opera. Movement means you're connecting an inspiration that starts as a small whisper and you, and you take a risk to talk about it with somebody else and, and you go through a hardship and you talk to them about it and you share the fact that you're in conflict and you don't know what to do and it creates a bond that hadn't been there before and you are both moved and you are larger. And if you keep doing that, it grows into a movement such that by the time they march from Selma to Montgomery into Montgomery, you could feel history shifting with a movement. And that's a process that begins with the conflict and the discomfort, but the good thing we have, and it's not easy to teach that it's, that it's creative and that all these people were wrestling with their most fundamental beliefs, with their spiritual beliefs and their civic beliefs, and how to put them together and how to risk them. And um, that this was a wonderful thing. One, you know, one of the things that I think we've lost is that there are many people on the liberal side of things who appreciate the civil rights movement who, who have totally renounced the spiritual tradition, just conceded that entirely to the religious right as an oxym, you know, uh, as a synonym. That if that if you are religious, you're a right winger. Uh, well. This movement would have never gotten off the ground if it didn't have, it, it's a truism to say that it needed the refuge of the Southern Black Church because that was the only institution that was safe to plot in. <laughs> um, but that doesn't begin to approach the debt to the church. It, it was a spiritual debt as well. It was, it was motivation. Uh, it's no accident that all these things came out of the preach. So anyway, um, two things, it's, it's hard to get the notion that this is creative, but the one advantage we have is that young people did it. You know, we are still, as a country, so embarrassed about the fact, I argue that the real tipping point in the 60s, the letter from Birmingham jail didn't convince a soul that Dr. King was right and that segregation in Birmingham was wrong. He couldn't get it in the newspapers. It was another long-winded King sermon until those kids, and Freeman Herbowski's one of them, uh, he was 12 years old. He's the only one I've ever found who got his parents' permission. Because basically, <laughs> basically there was a civil war in every black household in Birmingham. The moment word got out that Martin Luther King was even dreaming of letting high school and middle school and even elementary school kids march.
that he was insane. And, and they came right in there and accused him and yelled and screamed at him. And then his aides, like Jim Bevel, who, who was uh, a piece of work straight out of the Bible, um, uh, he heard voices. Uh, people said he was crazy. He jumped right up in their face and said, your children have to do this for you because you didn't do what you should have done 30 years ago to get them their freedom. Against you, they have a right to make this witness. So this is a kind of conflict, but it's eight-year-olds um, uh, that really did this. And nowadays, you can read a PhD dissertation on some minor change in an attack ad that shifted one or two congressional races. But you, you will never find a PhD dissertation on how the whole power system of the civil rights movement in that turned on the witness of eight-year-old girls, mostly girls, who marched into the dogs and fire hoses. Why? Because it's too embarrassing to our pretenses that politics is about what we adults do. And um, so, again, it's, it's an advantage that you have that, that children alone are a vital part of this history. Okay, so I had a question. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in your book being fearfully oblivious to race. Mm. And, um, and I actually had a student at Park, uh, a white student, who said, I don't really want to think about these things because there's no viable solution. So what, what engaged you in this history? And yeah, and why did you decide to write about it? I'm, you picked out a, 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 this is part of the new material. That's it. I grew up fearfully oblivious to race in Atlanta. I was born in Atlanta. And I was fearfully oblivious because I was in a non-political family. Um, my dad had a dry cleaning plant. I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, my deepest dream was to play center field for the Yankees. And, um, <laughs> and uh, the civil rights movement, because we didn't have any, our local team, by the way, uh, in, in those days, we didn't have major league sports in the South because it was segregated. Oh. Uh, no teams wanted to come down there and have to deal with all those hassles. So our team was the Atlanta Crackers. <laughs> I kid you not. And if you think that's strange, the team in the Negro Leagues, my friend Julian Vaughn has a big jacket with his team. The team in the Negro Leagues was the Atlanta Black Crackers. What made, what made me fearfully um, obsessed and, and, and avoiding and fascinated with this is that is just a coincidence of time. I was in the first grade the year of the Brown decision. It was just starting. I didn't pay any attention to that. But by the time I was in fourth or fifth grade, the sit-ins were starting. And it was scary. It was scary for black people. It was scary for white people. And believe me, uh, be skeptical of a lot of the people who say that they were right in the middle of the civil rights movement, because an awful lot of them are lying. Because um, um, it was scary. It was scary for everybody. It was certainly scary for me, and I did my best to avoid it. But it went on so relentlessly and for so long, and it had effect on the, the white city fathers in Atlanta who ran things and insisted that they had the problem under control. And by the time you get to high school, you have a pretty keen ear for, for, for sophistry and hypocrisy. And you could tell that they didn't have it. If race relations requires looking a problem in the eye, they were at most looking at it in the ankle. 
Um, but they were insisting that they had things under control. And that kind of said, well, how, how can it be so powerful that even the mayor of Atlanta and all these people are, are pretending everything is segregated. There's violence. You can see that they're scared. But they invented a, a city slogan that they still have, uh, that Atlanta was the city too busy to hate. And that is still a motto down there. The black mayor will come out and say we're the city too busy to hate. And even as a high school kid, by this time it has been going on so long for me. And it's, uh, now I'm wondering about why is it that in even rock and roll music, my friends will court their girlfriends only to the music of Jackie Wilson you know, and, and Sam Cooke. And, and maybe Johnny Mathis, but he's too white for us, you know, that, <laughs> that black musicians have the keys to the human heart and we're supposed to grow up and wear neckties and use big words, but we, but we really don't know anything about the heart. The race opens up these, all these mysteries and I wanted to know where it, where, where it came from. And, um, and, and I went and I started asking questions. The city too busy to hate? Aren't you, isn't that confessing that if you don't keep yourself busy, your natural incli inclination is to hate? I mean, this is your slogan. It's not my slogan. And so as a, as a high school student from a very, very um, um, uh, all-white segregated school, by the time I was uh, 16 years old, I was just then saying, this has gone on forever. This goes really deep. Uh, about Christianity, it goes really deep about the promise of democracy. Um, maybe when I get really old, like 30 and secure, <laughs> I'll, I'll stick my toe in it. And I kid you not, it was almost exactly that time that you, I opened up the paper and turned on the TV, and there are those girls marching in Birmingham into the dogs and fire hoses. And they didn't have any of my advantages, and they're singing the same songs I sing in Sunday school and marching right through the dogs and fire hoses and getting hauled off to jail. And I asked my parents, how can this be? And they didn't have an answer, and I never got I wanted to know where it came from. So basically what I'm saying is I tried to avoid it. I was fearful. It went on so long, coincidentally for me, and luckily for me, through my whole formative years, because that's how long it took. If it, if it had only lasted a year or two, you know, I'd be a surgeon somewhere. <laughs> but it lasted my whole childhood until Martin Luther King was killed in the spring of my senior year in college. And by that time, it had redirected my whole life's interest against my will because I wanted to know where it came from. So uh, movements take a long time. Do we have time for one more question? Can I ask? I just wanted to um, broach a subject about sort of the new segregation. Um, in Baltimore City, you have students who have not had any interface with whites except maybe teachers. So their perspective of whites is, these are nice people who have come to help us. That's what I heard. Um, how, do, like, how do we elevate the conversation so that these students realize how relevant this history is to them? Because they think it, some of them, and I'm speaking in generalities, but some of them feel that this is no longer relevant to them. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. It, 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 it's, it's really hard to um, it, it's a real process to get to the point that people can possibly understand that the civil rights movement is about the future because the civil rights movement is about how we learn and apply the lessons of our democratic and our spiritual faith 
in, in, in learning how to get along with each other and in, lear in learning how to solve our problems because our real strengths are the things that we knit together. That, that's, that's been true of democracy. It's true of everything that we've ever done that's significant. And we're still imprisoned in this George Wallace fear to the degree that you've got a lot of people walking around saying that, that their strength and their freedom depends on the Bushmaster in their closet. Um, you can't point to any episode in American history where that's true. And what it really shows is that this is about attitudes and this is about fearfulness. And the only way out of it is, is to take steps you know, into the unknown. My, uh, uh, Diane Nash, who's even in the little book, she's a lot. This book is not a lot of, all about Martin Luther King, even in a short book. Uh, I think there are three or four chapters about Bob Moses. It's mm -hmm. alternate forms of leadership. But Diane Nash, to me, is the most unsung one of all. This is not in the book, but she told me years later that her recurring image of the movement was her wedding day because her knees were shaking and she knew she was about to take a step into the unknown that was really going to define her and it depended not only on her but other people not, not just her husband but other people around her and in the movement it depended on whether the people were going to beat her to death or or talk to her and that and that the image of her wedding day kept coming back because when you were arguing about whether to go to jail or what to do or whether to have more education or everything, she felt that every day was like a wedding day. If you can ever get students to see, to see the creative side of that, uh, you, you've, you've really let loose some nuclear energy and, 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 and that's where it'll go. Uh, but we've we've kind of let it uh, let it go out either by pretending that we have all the believe me I, I've blamed just a little bit of two sentences on the history I, I blamed a lot of this on George Wallace and on the conservative movement in, in a way that kind of took hold in the notion that government is bad and therefore I, I'm against it to the point that people pretend to care about deficits but we've had two times in the last 60 years where we had a surplus and neither time did anybody say on the conservative who cares about deficits, this is a great achievement, let's preserve it and study how we did it? They were busy trying to cut taxes so they could get deficits back again. Because, so what it shows you is that this is not really about any of that. It's about an attitude. It, 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 and that's what cynicism is. It's an attitude. It's not a judgment. And, uh, and so um, for, for kids, we, we, need to, we need to figure out how to... Uh, how to revive that, and a lot of it is we have to, those of us on the pro-civil rights side have to acknowledge that we bear a lot of the blame too. Not only did we turn away from the spiritual side of it, an awful lot of people are hostile to religion or, or condescending toward religion, which amounts to the same thing. Um, we, people from the left turned against nonviolence, not from the right. Nonviolence was the most powerful idea of the, of the civil rights era, but it became passe in 1966. And the cruelest and nastiest articles about Martin Luther King as somebody who was, who was out of it and, and so Uncle Tom came from the left. And we turned against nonviolence. And, uh, and it, 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 we don't study it. We don't even study it in colleges where every kid wants to know about violence. It's so salient. It's in the culture, but we don't have independent thought about what is the role, what is the relationship between power and violence, power and nonviolence. These are profound subjects, and the only people that I know who are really studying them 
are in the National War College, military people. They are much less, much more sophisticated about violence and nonviolence than people who nominally inherit the nonviolence tradition. So, and a lot of people, of course, on the left turned against the movement for two reasons, uh, turned against liberals because they gave us the Vietnam War and because the liberals dilly-dallied so long to answer the race question. You know, that it took them forever to do it. And by that time, there are, I know a lot of people who went to jail for the right to vote many, many times, but by the time Selma finally occurred and they'd gone to jail and they'd been beaten and they'd had this, that, and the other, they said, if the federal government is involved with the Voting Rights Act, it can't be any good. I'm against it. So uh, anti-government cynicism is not purely a function of the political right. We are all complicit in it. It's too pervasive in our society. Uh, and, but to me, the good thing about it is that it helps you. It helps you. You know, I think that we're at a time when we have a window where we can begin to, 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 to rebalance this, but it helps you realize that when you start taking steps to rebalance it, they start reinforcing one another and uh, um, to reclaim what we can do together. And the civil rights movement did that in the face of a system where, they, where black people had no votes, no power, no institutions, were largely invisible in the culture. And that didn't stop them. They said, okay, well, that's where the problem starts. And we have to figure out how to end it. And we have to assume sacrifice to solve problems that somebody else is doing to us. There's no answer to that. When Stokely Carmichael went to Dr. King and said, Dr. King, I've been nonviolent for six years. Why do we have to be nonviolent? Why does America only admire nonviolence in black folks? And otherwise, they like John Wayne and, and James Bond. You know, uh, why do we have to go out and, and court further sacrifice to cause a problem that has injured us? Dr. King said, Stokely, I'm not telling you it's fair. I'm telling you that it is a leadership doctrine. We are ahead of white culture. If we step up to be just violent like John Wayne, we will be going backwards, not going forward. And so these are, these are profound uh, lessons uh, that are lying there. And uh, I, I do think that, um, that, that they are accessible to young people if you, if, you, if you show them they're accessible through, you know, music is, an, is another thing. I've got this enhanced book, and it's, an, that I'm, it's hard enough for me to understand a digital book, an e-book, um, <laughs> that you read on a Kindle and everything. But this one uh, has, you'll hear that there's a demonstration and then you can click and you can see a news clip of the demonstration. Or I will write about Dr. King arguing with President Johnson in this incredible conversation about the heights of Selma and the fears that they're going to come apart over Vietnam. And you can click and you can hear them talk to each other. Um, those are things for young people. I hope it brings it away. They see young people arguing about the movement. So to me... To some degree, in the spirit of the movement, I want to try to use any newfangled thing that I don't understand yet <laughs> that gives me a point of contact with young people today for a story that, to me, has so much advantage for, advantage for them if you can get in the door because people their age were the ones that made the difference. And the correct long-range view of history, to me, for white people 
is that the black-led movement was leaders for them, too. They weren't just trying to end segregation so that they wouldn't have to sit on the back of the bus. They were setting loose these these things of, uh, of freedom that, as I said, benefited everybody, including most especially white Southerners who sit around and, and, and pretend that it was a terrible hardship on them to be liberated. Um, uh, and, you know, somebody walked up and gave them $50,000, and not only do they not acknowledge that they got it, they say, you know, I would have been a lot richer if it hadn't been for you. So it's a, um, it's a peculiarly perverse thing to, to try to get through. Most people, even in Barack Obama's time, we've come a long way. It's very important how comfortable people are. But there's a very strong strain in our culture that still says we want to admire our black president on our terms. Uh, so that if he talks about Skip Gates getting arrested or he talks about how if, if he had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. All hell breaks loose because people say he's being too black or this, that, and the other. So in a way, we've, we've gone forward, but it's very, very similar to the March on Washington. A naive gloss on how, how these things are that the I have a dream speech ends saying that when that day comes, uh, all God's children, black men, white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last. He's inviting white America into the Negro world, into the world of the spirituals, into the world of the spirituals, because it's a leadership world and it's a vitality that's a vital part of America. But if you look at the press coverage from the next day to this day, the interpretation of the white of, of the march on Washington is that black people came and behaved just like white people and made white people comfortable, um, and that it was a nice day. That's what I have a dream is, and that's because people want to see it that way. You know, Bayard Rustin, Bayard Rustin is a great, great character. That he said to me that he had been disdained for his whole career. He is, he he was ra he's a bastard child. He thought his, his mother was really his grandmother. Um, he was a communist. He, he was a, a draft dodger. He, he resisted World War II. He was a criminal, and he was a homosexual. And every reporter knew that, and they reviled him, and they hated him. But all the reporters said the March on Washington was going to tear people, tear Washington apart, because you couldn't have hordes of black people come to Washington without blood and guts. They stockpiled plasma. They had paratroopers on alert. Um, they they cancel alcohol sales for the first time since uh, since uh, prohibition, and to me the the really big one was that Major League Baseball on Thursday before I mean, on Sunday before the march canceled the Washington Senators home game on the day of the march and the day after the march. This is a week in advance. They canceled two baseball games. I mean, they played football, you know, the NFL played on Sunday after the Kennedy assassination, for God's sake. But people were so scared uh, of the March on Washington that Rustin said when it turned out that it was all right and that these people were leading us in a direction that was good, he said all the reporters came to him and said, Bayard, all is forgiven. They put me on the cover of Life magazine as a genius. And he said they all wrote all these songs that said this was a scary man and, and this movement was going to come here like the Visigoths and, and tear apart Washington until this wizard, Bayard Rustin, put porta-potties all along the mall 
and made those Negroes nice enough for tea. And so what he's saying is that there is, we have to be on guard that there is a tendency to interpret everything in a way to make ourselves comfortable, even when we're being good. We like the fact that we have... Uh, we like the fact that we have a, a black president who's trying to restore our capacity that we can address our problems, but, we, but it's much harder for us to see that he has lived his whole life with no choice but to deal with everybody else's assumptions about race that put him at a disadvantage. He has to absorb all of that and then turn around and look at everything from our point of view in order to have a chance. And we grow when we look beyond that. Taylor, I'm thinking we could maybe take a few questions. So if people want to come to this mic, uh, we have time for a few. Thank you. I know it's hot in here. We'll try to um, move things along briskly. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, I'd like to say my name is Coley Tingala, and in terms of full disclosure, I have the privilege of being an OSI fellow, um, using theater and filmmaking with young people for social justice in East Baltimore. Um, I have to ask you a question. There are numerous other scholars, African, quote unquote, black scholars, that have examined this point in history. Um, does it ever become burdensome for you, I phrase it this way, being a white man, being perceived as the expert on blackness and black people during this time, um, because it makes it difficult, we've met before. Initially, it made it difficult for me to embrace your writing until I had the pleasure of meeting you and then reading it. But it's always as if black people, people of color, have to go to a white individual to seek validation of their pain and suffering, triumph and victory. And on a, on a side note, I find it really positively progressive and really wonderful that here at a meeting on race, that a person speaking out, uh, uh, exercise their right for free speech, um, and almost asked to leave an assembly was an older, distinguished white gentleman rocking tweed and a bow tie. That I think that shows some promise. So if you could ask. <laughs> Wait a minute. What we say about black is, is the is the bow tie tweed white man laughing? Is he laughing? Is that a good one? <laughs> so if you could um, address that, I truly would appreciate it. You, I'll address the question about me as a white writer in this uh, in this subject. Um, I mean, basically, to me, the answer is is in the premise of your question. No black person that I know of to this day, and it's been over 30 years, has come to me and asked me to write this story. Uh, I went to everybody asking them if I could write this story, saying, this is in my gut from my childhood. I want to know where this came from. Will you talk to me? Now, a lot of them wouldn't. There's no question about that. Um, uh, I, I wrote Harry Belafonte 25 letters trying to get an interview with him. And he, and he resisted me and he resisted. And I had to learn how to wear people down. And, um, and, and, and basically what I learned in that is this. If you go in and just presume that somebody's going to talk to you, they're either not going to talk to you or they're going to give you what I call the Martin increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man interview and I was his best friend, which is, of course, useless. <laughs> what you have to do 
is you have to do enough work to get on the interior of the things that they cared about in the movement and show that that's what you're interested in. You're interested in looking at the movement from, uh, from something that happened that you think might have been a turning point in their life. In other words, you have, to, you have to do enough work that you can touch them as a person, not as a symbol. And then when that happens, you may, one night after you've given up a long time ago, uh, you're... Christy's right here. The, she looked utterly stunned. She says, he, he says he's Harry, Bel, Harry Belafonte, but I don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> and, and he wanted to do an interview, and I'll tell you exactly what he said. He said, I've read all those letters. You may think I didn't read, and I can't do his accent, you know, his husky voice. I read all those letters. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Mr. Branch, uh, good to see you again. I'm John Milton Wesley. I grew up in Ruville, Mississippi. St. Lou Hamer was my godmother. Uh, James, James Bevel actually was at my house every day in 55, 56, taking my uncle down to the Baxter plant in Indianola. Meg Edwards was my insurance man. He worked for, he worked for Dr. T.R.M. Howell in Mount Bayou, Mississippi. But let me just, just ask you one thing about Diane Nash and James Bevel. Uh, as you know, James was a very quirky guy, wore Jewish kufi the whole 20 minutes, slipped in a book of uh, the jet to let me see Emmett Till in the casket. How do you, given what James did just before he expired, how do you, in writing the story, share the important things that he did, you know, including the fact Dr. King wanted him to succeed him uh, at SCLC? But the crazy stuff about James' life, how do you tell the story without including that part of his life and the fact that people like Mrs. Hamer, Dr. Howard, the church people, these were ordinary folks. How do you tell those stories and how do you decide what to leave out? Well, first of all, I want to say I got chills just hearing all the people that you knew because I spent a lot of time in Ruleville and, and I... And Fannie Lou is one of the few people from that period who died before I started the work that I actually met uh, 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 earlier. And we had some amazing experiences. But Bevel, you ask a great question about Bevel. Be Bevel was, I said he was crazy and that he heard voices. He was crazy. But, <laughs> but it, it was worse than that. He was an abusive person. He was abused himself sexually. He was cruel. Uh, he was a womanizer. Uh, he he um, he was the most gifted preacher in the movement, uh, bar none. Uh, his mind was like sparklers going off in the sky, but he was nuts. And Dr. King always used to say, and this I, I can't give a better answer than he gave. He would say to Andy Young, Andy. If the movement depended on folks like you, we'd have never got off the ground. You're too normal, you know. <laughs> You you still think that if you go home and learn the names of the Beethoven sonatas that white folks will like you. <laughs> Bevel knows that's not true. He's crazy. But he understands that to do what we're trying to do, you have to be crazy. And the great challenge for people in the movement is to distinguish between what's creatively crazy and what's destructively crazy. And Bevel was right on that edge. Right on that edge. 
So I'm just going to ask for a few seconds to shoot back down just because I read left and you're kind of far and I can't read your left anymore. Um, so my question is primarily for the educators, but a few months ago after the presidential election, there was a website that featured an article about high school students posting racist tweets about the president. And then that website, the editor took it upon themselves to contact the school administrators and pursue some sort of justice or some sort of action. So I was kind of curious as to what your take was on that as educators and if that sort of circumstances happened to you, how would you respond to it? I didn't get the full gist of the question. I'm so sorry, I didn't get the full gist of the question in terms of what the students had done. <laughs> Okay, the first part of the question? No, the, the end of the question where you said the students had done X and Y. What um, is it that the high um, school students had done? What did the high school students do? Oh, uh, they were posting racist comments uh, on Twitter about the presidential election and the outcome. And so, and your question is, what would we do as so educators? Do you agree with how the website pursued those administrators and asked them to contact or what sort of action they were going to take on their students, whether it was expulsion, suspension, um, stripping them of their act, uh, extracurricular activities. Well, let, let me just say you're talking to the wrong person about suspending kids. <laughs> and I, I actually think that everything is a teachable moment. So if students are making those types of uh, comments publicly, and in such a way that you can trace them, then it creates a moment for them to have a discussion. There's a wonderful group in Baltimore City called the Community Conferencing Center, and they take people who are at complete odds with one another and have them all come to a circle and have discussions about what it is they're thinking, but more importantly, what it is that the, the thoughts and the, the acts have done to them. So when it, it humanizes the entire process, and I, and I think that that's what Taylor is talking about tonight, it's all about humanizing what happened. Punishing those kids, sending them home, that will never let them understand what it is they've done. So all kids have to be held accountable, but not put out of school. Hi, good evening. Um, this, this is a question for all three of you that all three of you can answer. Um, Ms. Wright, you said that the students that you take on the trip to, um, to the South on the civil rights trip are all generally open-minded, and I think many people right now are. But um, I think as someone who went to a very privileged, very white university, um, I, not everyone is. And I think um, a lot of people who are in those types of positions in very privileged, very white institutions are generally the ones who be, um, become are able to be in positions of power later on, um, and <clears throat> um, so many conversations I would have about race at my at my college um, were typically shut down. They were um, stopped because of this feeling of white guilt. If it was with white students, um, it was stopped because of feelings of white guilt. They would start crying, and um, the conversations couldn't continue. Um, so it was just kind. It wasn't very productive conversation. Um, so I was wondering, how can we, how do we begin to have truthful discussions about race, as well as gender, sexual orientation, um, gender identity, um, ability, et cetera? And um, furthermore, how do we begin to implement policies informed by these histories, by our history, accurately formed by our history? Well, I would, um, 
Being at Park, which is a progressive school, we have the opportunity um, to really engage students at all levels, at the youngest ages, about differences, about respect for differences. And um, so whether that's through literature, through open conversations with teachers and guest speakers, allowing students to ask questions without fear of, of saying the wrong thing. So whether, you know, at kindergarten that starts, um, our curriculum, is diverse, and so we're again we're encouraging students to ask questions um, and to talk about differences, um, and whether it's about skin tone and asking about melanin or asking about you know living in a two parent two mom household, um, we give students permission and we give them the language. Um, to ask those questions. I think that's really important. And, and as adults, we have to reinforce that and we have to be open and we have to model that. Um, and so I think at the youngest ages, we're able to do that. Um, in fourth grade, there is a civil rights unit for our students. In seventh grade, students study activism. Um, in the upper school, we have many opportunities. But I think we have to present those. And adults have to be comfortable saying, race is important and let's talk about it. And, um, and so I, I'm in a really fortunate and privileged environment um, that we encourage our our faculty, administrators, and students to have the opportunity to talk about really difficult issues. That's the only way that things are going to get better. So when we spend a week together talking about race at Park, we move as a community. And we have the language to talk to our students about that. Um, good evening. I'm sorry. I think this probably will have to be our last question. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Roland Patterson. Um, I want to express my appreciation to the educators for what you're doing. And I have two questions for you, please, Mr. Branch. Um, I want to ask a question first about Dr. King. Uh, I'm a King fan. But I want to ask you about the second trip to Memphis. Um, uh, it is apparent from the reports, the news, some of the books, that uh, the first uh, March in Memphis had been infiltrated. Um, furthermore, it is uh, reported that Dr. King knew that the first March had been infiltrated and that the infiltrators had been uh, perpetuated, if you will, by the FBI. And so I want to ask you, in light of that knowledge, about the wisdom of the second trip to Memphis. I mean, could, could he possibly have thought that the, and, and again, I'm a King fan, but I mean, you know, could he possibly have thought that the second march to, or the second trip to Memphis was actually going to bring about the desired goal in light of what happened on the first march? And then second, my second question has to do with um, our economic system as opposed to our political system. And I just want to ask you this. Do you think that uh, with our unbridled profit motivation in the system of capitalism, that we're always going to be oppressing someone, that we're always going to be causing um, the walking on the back of someone, and we're always going to need some kind of movement to set someone free. Thank you. Well, those are two good. Those are two good questions. Both both of them are good questions. Um, the only part of the premise of your question that, that that I would quarrel with, the FBI did an awful lot of terrible things to Dr. King. Uh, I've spent a lot of my life trying to document what they did. Most of it was cowardly, and uh, their their refrain was, don't do anything to embarrass the Bureau. So they wouldn't do anything they had to take uh, responsibility for. They did terrible propaganda there. He knew that the march was infiltrated, but... The, the guy that he talked to about infiltrating it w went to Morehouse. Okay. 
Um, and it was kids who thought that they could get attention uh, by acting out against nonviolence, which in the culture then was no longer as, po uh, as, as, as popular. Um, so he had all kind of tension, and what he hoped, he felt that nonviolence would die unless he could show that that nonviolence could recommand order in that march. That, that's what he was there for. And in that sense, the conspiracy theories about, about his death, there certainly was a conspiracy in his death. There's no question about it. But as a historian, I'll tell you that I think the most balanced view is that it was more or less at the level of a truck stop. Mm -hmm. uh, that is some fellow uh, enablers and, ra and racists uh, of, of, you know, James Earl Ray was a petty criminal. Uh, if it had been Smirsh or the CIA or the helicopter companies, they would have had him in South Africa the next morning. Mm -hmm. he, he had to knock over 7-Elevens trying to get to Canada. It took him a long time. Mm -hmm. And w what I'm saying is that this is another example of cynicism for the left, or there's a danger of it. When Dexter King stands up and says, James Earl Ray is innocent because the federal government murdered my father, mm -hmm. what do you think that does to the, to the promise of a message from somebody whose whole career was an appeal to the nation to rise up through its federal government and live out the true meaning of its creed? All right. The whole thing was about the the promise of the United States rising above its imperfections in its government. Mm -hmm. And you're working against yourself if the presumption is that that government is inherently and always evil enough to be involved in a conspiracy that we can't even prove. So it's an article of faith. Mm -hmm. So conspiracy theory is, 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 is dangerous on, on our side, okay. uh, too. Now, the economic system, we live in a competitive society. We are always going to be spitting out injustices. Um, uh, there is, will always be a need uh, for, for movements, and there will always be debate about how do we balance the, the, the creative benefits of a system that produces things, our, our smartphones and all the things that we value, uh, and yet at the same time, as it globalizes, it, 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 it squeezes out more and more um, dysfunctional, disabled, disadvantaged people. Uh, I think that the economic uh, argument and the political argument uh, are, are fold into one another as, as one and the same. I, I tend to be from background, and my dad is a dry cleaner um, who believed hard work was, would settle everything and that people who believed in politics couldn't find honest work. He, 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 <laughs> I, I don't rebel against free enterprise altogether, but I think it's part of ev every citizen that we set the rules for it Every corporation can't exist unless it gets a charter from who? From okay. the government. And the government should be setting the rules that make this thing as fair as it can be and, and do that. And we abdicate that responsibility. And there are an awful lot of people who pretend as though the government is getting a charter from corporations. Well. Uh, and to some degree it is, but that's only because we let it happen. In theory, anybody will say that we as a people, as citizens, are responsible for the rules, the standards, the outcomes of our economic system. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to act that way. And the great example, again, of Diane Nash, where, where I'll end it, was that she took it upon her responsibility 
after the Birmingham church bombing, which she felt responsible for because she'd been one of the ones nagging Dr. King to let children march, and then four of them get bombed. She came up with the plan that became Selma and, and, and agitated it, and she had it by the next morning. And to me, it's one more example of her expanding the scope of what a movement is because most of us today would say, it's somebody else's job to do that. We need to elect a new president or we need to petition somebody else to do it. She said, no, it's my responsibility, even though she couldn't even vote herself. Okay. She came up with a plan to address heinous injustice on her own. And so I think all of the economic injustices that we face are our responsibility. And by the movement's example, they're the responsibility of even of the people who are victimized okay. by those same systems. Uh, A. Philip Randolph said in 1942, never expect, oppressed people should never expect anybody other than themselves to take the initiative for their own liberation. They can't do it by themselves. They got to reach out and they have to have allies. But, you know, the initiative belongs with all of us. Thank you very much. I want to thank uh, our speakers very much. It's been wonderful to have Taylor with us. You can see the great wisdom that one gets by studying history. Thank you all. Thank you both. <laughs>